the hard pill is you look at your decision and if you truly honestly see that any part of your decision is being made with fear, you shouldn't make a decision ideally based on a fear. I, you know, one of the exercises we have in one of the modules is get the decision and look at the thing and say, is use your name to yourself. Is Megan the type of woman that would do this? It'll be very clear. It'll either be good or bad, pretty much. Sometimes there's in the middle, but most of the time. And then do what, do Megan proud, so to speak, you know? A self-improvement guru convicted of turning followers into sex slaves has been sentenced. CBS 2's Lisa Rosner live at Brooklyn Federal Court with the breaking news. Lisa. Well, Maurice and Christine Ranieri will serve life in prison. He's been convicted of multiple crimes, including sex trafficking and racketeering. Those convictions made last year and today a judge sentenced him to 120 years. But it does appear based on there's a motion for new trial that's been filed, supported by uh, a longtime law enforcement federal official and multiple other experts that have looked at it that appears the core allegations against Rainier that he was framed by the FBI. I'll say it in English, but it's not going to make sense. You can feel as much joy as you want at any time. Then the next recognition is, why not? It's One American Podcast Live with Joseph Tully. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us today. How are you, sir? I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So um, uh, it's no uh, surprise to my audience that I've been um, uh, friendly to uh, toward Nexium and Keith Ranieri and uh, uh, Nikki Klein throughout this entire process. And she really sold me when she came on my podcast about a year ago, almost right after I started uh, on this whole issue. And so it's exciting to uh, talk to you and learn what's going on and what the status of this case is, um, how you got involved and what the, what, what, you know, the, the, the most optimistic outcome could be, because it seems like regardless of, um, whether or not one approves of Mr. Ranieri, uh, it seems like there was certainly some wrongdoing on this, uh, uh by the state in order to uh, convict him of these crimes and ultimately uh, ruin the rest of his life and um, uh, harm the lives of those who care most about him. So, so how did you get involved with Keith? Well, um, I, I'm a defense attorney. I've been in, uh, in my own practice since 2001. I have a good reputation because I work hard and I've dedicated, you know, uh, my life the, the last 21 years to, um, you know, elevating my practice to the best I could possibly uh, become. I've had, you know, I've taken on a lot of really high profile cases and I've, I've got really great results in them. Um, and particularly when the when the deck is stacked against, you know, my client, well, I, I've excelled in a lot of uh, political like persecutions rather than prosecutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, I in 2018, I released a book, uh, sort of a, a tell all, uh, you know, throwing the, the court's dirty laundry out to the world uh, called California State of Collusion. And I just, like I said, it's a tell-all book. I, I didn't pull any punches. I didn't exaggerate, but um, I, I certainly didn't hold back. And I wanted the, the average person to know that if they think that the court system today is about truth, justice, and the American way, um, sadly, um, our, our court system would fall, fall, fall short of those uh, expectations. And um, 
you know, I, I think just one referral led to another and, and I was hired for the case. What, what case was your first big break in terms of, you know, a big deal case that you, and, and, and you won and you were like, holy shit, you know, this is it. <laughs> um, I think um, I had a, a, a homicide case that was an impossible case. It was back then I was doing court appointed work and I would conference this case. It was like, you know, one of my most serious cases and I would try to conference it with other older experienced attorneys and we would go through the facts and um, it would always end with them kind of laughing going, ha well, you know, kid, you know, a lot of times you just get a, a loser case and there's nothing you could do. And I just heard that over and over and over. And I kept working the case and kept working the case and kept working the case. And again, if you were to look at it, it would look like a textbook open and shut case for the prosecution. But I, I got a not guilty verdict on that case. I think it was about a 20 minute verdict after, you know, it was, it was a long trial. So that was one of my first big moments. And then um, when the medical uh, cannabis law was, was still uh, allowed in California, um, I was getting hired on those cases. And I did 10 of those cases in a row, all high profile, um, all very politicized where, you know, law enforcement, judges, you know, prosecutors and a lot of members of the community wanted my clients to get convicted. And I was able to um, to win all of those cases. So I think medical uh, winning the medical cannabis cases raised my profile as well. But I think I beat the last six or seven murder um, charges that, that I've had that I've been retained on. So, um, you know, it's just, it's like I said, I work very, very hard and I dedicated my life to, to be the best that I could be in my, in my profession. When you're not, pay, when you're not playing the Telecaster in the background. Exactly. Yeah. I have an SG back there too. A 79 SG. So the beautiful, that's beautiful. I studied audio engineering, so I have an appreciation for fine instruments. Okay. <laughs> so when you were, can you tell me a little bit about what you were thinking when you were first approached about the Ranieri case? Um, I was thinking that, you know, while my, you know, I, it wouldn't have surprised me if, you know, a lot of big cases that, that I see on the news in California, I'll get a call, you know, that day, the next day, a week later. I'll, a lot of times with the big cases, I'll get a call, but not so much on the East Coast. Um, so when I got the call to to kind of come in on the case, I just was surprised and I was thinking, you know, I, I don't want easy cases. Um, I want to stand up for the underdog. I want to be able to be here when, um, you know, in the, in the hard cases. And like I said, that's, that's really, um, why I do what I do. You know, I'm not here to win a popularity contest and I'm not even here to, I I've had good success in trial, but I'm just as proud of taking my clients to trial, um, on, on cases where they, they were impossible and doing the absolute best that I could and making sure that my clients got a fair day in court, um, when that's what they wanted. So, um, that's just, I, I, I was, yeah, just kind of honored, uh, to be considered, um, for this high profile of a case and then to hear of the odds, uh, stacked against, you know, truth in this case. So had you previously watched The Vow or seduced or been familiar at all with um, uh, with the accusations against Mr. Ranieri uh, before before you were approached to take take the case? 
I had just seen headlines here and there um, on some, you know, maybe social media or some news sites. Um, so when I was saying that I've, I've dedicated my life toward toward my practice and just being the best that, that I could be at what I do, um, I really mean it. So I, I don't follow the news. I don't really do anything other than work on my cases that, that I'm retained on. So the cases that I'm retained on, I know, you know, everything about them or by the time trial comes, I do. Um, so I really hadn't heard the, the ins and outs of this. I had just seen the like the salacious headlines. So what was what what is your approach when you uh, first take on a case? What were the first things that you looked at when you decided, OK, I'm going to work this? Okay, so um, I came in on the case after Mr. Ranieri was um, had been convicted and received a 120 year sentence. And so there's a whole file on this, a, a huge file, you know, lots of transcripts, lots of prior motions, uh, not just Mr. Ranieri, but all of his co-defendants as well. Um, and then what specifically what I was uh sort of pointed to is to evaluate in terms of the next approach was this whole tampering issue, you know, that the FBI was tampering with evidence. And I, you know, obviously that's, that's a very explosive charge and it's um, something I didn't, I didn't just believe it right away. I wanted to sort through it. I wanted to get uh, verification, you know, trust, but verify. Um, and, and, and that is extremely technical. So um, it's all, all of the tampering evidence is, is very, very technical. And so that took me a, a long time to pour through. But basically, the approach for this case or any case is um, four words. What does the evidence show? That's it. Um, you don't think, is my client a good person? Is my client a bad person? Is the prosecutor a, a mean person or are they, you know, Mr. Rogers? Um, is a judge, you know, looking for reelection or are they, you know, a nice person, mean person, Republican, Democrat, Crip, blood? It doesn't matter. What does the evidence show? And you follow the evidence. And that's what I did here. Wow. So it must have um, there must have been quite a learning curve, right? Given that the uh, the nature of the evidence is highly technical. So you must have had to sit with the experts to sort of explain to you as a lawyer the ins and outs of how evidence in file structure works and how this could possibly be tampered with. Right. Uh, correct. Yes. I mean, that this is a process that, that played out over months and, you know, learning learning the technical aspects of the tampering was, you know, let's say, it was equally as important as learning the, the legal aspects of the file, you know, learning what happened. Um, the testimony in this case, particularly of, of some of the FBI uh, witnesses or FBI uh, agents, um, is relevant to the tampering. So it's 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 an all all in one. You kind of have to learn both simultaneously, even though each individually could take, you know, a normal person a year to, to understand, um, individually. One of my favorite movies is, uh, Shawshank Redemption, right? And there's this, there's this inside joke among the prisoners in that movie uh, where they're all innocent, right? And their lawyers just screwed them. That's the only reason that they got locked up. And so when you, in the, based on the nature of your business, uh, as a criminal defense attorney and perhaps working with clients who are, who have already been convicted, um, there's, 
there's probably an awful lot of skepticism uh, about who's telling the truth or who's lying to you in order to try to coerce you to defend them, right? Because they're looking for the best shot out. And maybe, maybe uh, oftentimes it may be the case that these prospects for you are indeed guilty of the crime in which they have been convicted. And so how, uh, um, what was it like to sort of realize, oh my God, there, this tampering is, is, seems to be real. Well, I, you know, I can tell you that I, I didn't just uh, take anybody's word for it. And I did work very closely um, with the experts and as sort of part of uh, an in, in-person, in-house sort of trial uh, balloon to kind of test this out. Um, we had, you know, you've heard of a mock jury, right? Sure. Okay. Well, what we did is sort of a, a mock grand jury where, um, you know, in order, most federal cases come from indictments where a federal prosecutor presents uh, facts to a grand jury. And at the end, the grand jury votes to indict or not indict. And um, I wanted to really test out this theory. You know, is it is it just these experts? Um, you know, they, they they were hired. Maybe they're just trying to find something. Is it me? Are we just in our own little bubble? And we took our case to uh, a mock grand jury and out of the 19 people there, um, and we followed all of the sort of the process in terms of um, how, how the government would compose a, a grand jury, we did, did the exact same thing. So it was as close as we could get to an actual grand jury um, following that exact process. Um, we had 19 people, and of the 19 people there, 16 you know, would voted to indict the FBI for, for tampering with evidence. And, so um, that it, at that moment, that was my aha moment. Like this, this is real. You know, not only is it the experts, you know, three uh, top level computer uh, forensic experts, you know, me and I'm, I'm, you know, very knowledgeable in criminal law and and have seen many cases. Um, and now we have this grand jury all kind of supporting the same um, summary, the same decision that, no, that this is real. This is legit. The FBI, um, the evidence shows that the FBI tampered um, with a hard drive and with a computer computer card in this case. So Ranieri was convicted of sort of a litany of charges. Why is it that you think the FBI would feel compelled to tamper with this evidence if they had such a strong case against against him uh, on other fronts? You know, I, I can't always uh, explain government conduct, um, but I could give you an, an example um, that I think illustrates it. So in Orange County, there is a, a ongoing uh, controversy with the sheriff's office uh, using jailhouse snitches. And there was, uh, it's still to, to this day, the worst mass shooting in Orange County history where the gunman was caught red-handed at the scene of the crime and confessed to police. Um, that wasn't good enough. The, the sheriffs, and this was absolutely unconstitutional, um, absolutely crooked, knowing that um, that, that individual, the, the, the accused in that case, um, had an attorney still put in a, a snitch as, as their agent into his jail cell to get an additional confession. And because they did that, it um, it invalidated the the guilty verdict in that case. So it had to be, um, you know, the, the case had to be 
you know, kind of vacated and, and it went through, it, it put the, the victim's family through a lot of hell and there's no reason for them to do it. They just did it. So I can't really always, um, tell you, you know, put, put a motivation to why the government does the things it does, but it, you know, it's, it's similar to how a psychopath thinks, you know? Yeah. So in the event that, um, uh, uh, this evidence was in fact tampered with, which we both agree, uh, is the case, uh, what does that mean for, uh, your client, Keith Ranieri, um, uh, regarding all the other charges, right? So is, is the whole thing going to be thrown out in the event that this is proven, uh, to be the case, or is he still going to be, um, uh, uh culpable or held to account for the other things that he was convicted of? So I, I think that question will be needed to be litigated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the evidence is overwhelming that the tampering happened, but the government may fall back on the issue of, well, um, this only affects, you know, the uh, child possession of child pornography charges, as well as the exploitation of, of a child charge, which is, you know, for the same conduct, taking these photos, which... Um, the, the photos aren't uh, child porn per se. Um, they're, they, they're illegal based upon whether or not um, th- what date they were taken. If they were right. taken when she was 18 or over, then, um, then they would be legal. If they were taken under 18, then they would be illegal. They would be contraband. So um, that, that would be the government's position. I think there's an absolutely strong argument um, and, and it's the better argument, the one that should prevail in court, that all of the charges should be vacated um, because these were absolutely the worst, most heinous charges that anyone could be charged with. And so because these were falsely presented to a jury, clearly these would have tainted every other uh, charge in the case, as well as the fact that all of the co-defendants were standing united prior to trial. And um, had they been able to successfully present uh, evidence that their intent while in Nexium was to do good, uh, was to make the world a better place, then they would have beaten, basically they would have beaten all the racketeering charges. So um, all of the, the main substantive uh, charges Um, they had defenses to if they all kind of stood together and and kind of held their ground. Once these uh, accusations came out, one by one, all of the co-defendants accepted pleas and and agreed to cooperate with the government um, after that. So I think that it not only affects all of his charges, but all of the charges for the co-defendants as well. And just for the sake of the audience and for myself, for that matter, to make sure that we're on the same page, uh, my understanding is that there were a handful of images that were um, presented by the state as being child pornography. And that is to say they were presented uh, to the, by the state as being um, inappropriate photographs of an underaged person. And that um, upon further investigation by uh, outside forensics experts, it appears that the data or metadata or the nature of these files had been altered in order to make them look as if these images were taking taken at an earlier date than they were actually taken. And so, so my understanding is that this was actually an adult woman that was photographed, but the state manipulated the evidence in order to make it look like it was a child or a minor. 
Correct. And let me just buttress that statement by saying that um, all of the evidence that the experts have found of, of tampering, they all support the government's narrative of um, this, this individual being underage at the time. So if the photos were actually taken when she was a minor, there would be no need to tamper with the evidence at that point. Right. Right. They would just they could just rely on the state of the evidence. Look, here, here's the charge. But um, all of the um, all of the all the evidence of, of tampering supports the government's narrative of this, basically this 2005 date. If it wasn't a 2005 date, um, then it, it could have been proven that it was an adult woman. Now, I don't understand the law around um, dealing with this this type of material. And so pardon my ignorance, but as Keith's defense attorney, were you able to look at these images? So um, I, I would be able to look at them. You have to go through a special process and it, the the evidence remains in the possession of the government and you make an appointment and, and go look at them. I. Um, I don't need to actually view the images themselves. I need to have experts look at the computer data, the metadata um, related to these these images. I need my experts to look at the technical aspects, not really, you know, what the photos show, who they show, isn't really germane to um, whether or not tampering occurred. So, um, I, you know, I, I typically don't do... Uh, child pornography cases. My, sure. my law firm does them, but I, I personally do not do that. Um, in this case, I agreed to represent Mr. Ranieri on them because it, it's a different issue. You know, number one, the evidence shows that he's innocent, that the government, you know, tampered to uh, create this evidence. Um, but number two is, you know, the actual photos, um, you know, what background is the sky blue? Is it, you know, uh, how many clouds are in the sky? Is it the, you know, sun setting or rising? It's not germane to to the task that I have at hand, which is to look at the evidence and say, what does the evidence show? Will there be or has there been any testimony or statement from the uh, subject of the photograph, the woman in the photographs? So uh, she did not testify at trial. Uh, my understanding is that she gave a statement at a restitution hearing, and that's the extent of um, her testimony uh, as pertaining to this case. And the restitution hearing, I should clarify, happens after trial. So if somebody's convicted, then um, a restitution hearing occurs after that to decide the amount of damages that, that, the, uh, that the convicted owes to uh, victims. I see. And so uh, one of the things that was particularly alarming to me, and I know you mentioned that you don't typically work with CP cases, but one of the things that was particularly alarming to me about um, uh, uh, Keith's case was uh, my understanding of uh, a, a lot of pedophilia cases is that oftentimes, if not virtually every time when someone is found to have child pornography, they tend to have thousands upon thousands of images or hours upon hours of video content. And there's almost like a psychological uh, need to collect and organize and categorize this content. And so when they bust these people in the, in the event that they're actually uh, harboring this content and viewing this content, it's often a treasure trove, for lack of a better term, of material that is found. And, you know, with these, with, in Keith's case, it was really just sort of a handful of, of images associated with one one alleged victim. Right. And so so that was bizarre to me because it, it, one would think that if Keith actually did have that um, uh, uh, 
that hankering or that sexual persuasion rather um, that he would, that, that there would have been just tons and tons of material that was found. And that, that wasn't really the case in the first place, was it? Correct. And, and your uh, understanding is actually what was testified to um, by one of uh, my experts who was an FBI agent for uh, 20 years. And he said that, yeah, they are hyper vigilant about categorizing um, their CP. And that was not present in this case, which which he said was very unusual. So what um, just just for the sake of the audience and myself as well, what uh, what is what what are the legal avenues then that can be taken from this point? So you've got the situation where you have this man who's been convicted and sentenced to 120 years in prison under a litany of charges. And now, you know, for a fact that one of the main charges of the case was based off of evidence that had been tampered with. What is the legal recourse for Keith in this situation? Okay, so this is a a bit complicated uh, where we are right now in the case. Um, It's called procedural posture by, you know, courts, attorneys, you know, where, but it basically means where we're at in the case. So before I came in on the case, uh, an appeal had been filed by a previous attorney in the case, Jennifer Bonjean, who's an excellent attorney who had uh, previously done the appeal for Bill Cosby and uh, was successful in her endeavor with that case. Um, However, I I came in on the case after that had been filed and then I did a supplemental case. So let's say that the trial is right here and the appellate court case is up here. So two things had been filed in the appellate court, the appeal and the uh, supplement. And then I filed a on, on the same day as the uh, appeal was to be heard, then I filed a motion for a new trial in the district court. So the district court is where the jury trial happened. So um, we filed these these uh, motions up here with the appellate court saying, hey, appellate court, look at what the district court did during jury trial. You have to you know, give us a new trial or throw out the case or throw out these convictions um, for, this, for these reasons. Um, but down here on in the district court, we filed the motion for new trial based upon the uh, evidence tampering or the evidence of tampering that we found uh, it with with regard to the digital evidence in the uh, case presented at jury trial. So um, we're asking for a new trial with the, it's called a Rule 33 motion. We're asking for a new trial um, with that with that motion. Now, if I'm able to get a hearing and prove that the that the evidence tampering happened, which the experts um, all agree that in, in some instances, the tampering is to a scientific certainty. So it's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's even better than that, that the that this tampering occurred. So um, so once I'm able to do that, I it just really opens a can of worms. We would be allowed if they if they choose to prosecute him we would be allowed to confront, you know, our, our accusers and I'd be allowed to call them as witnesses and have them testify as to this tampering. And based on the strength of, of the evidence in this case, um, uh, my, my reasoned opinion is that many FBI um, employees, as well as I, I think people who, who I could prove collaborated with them, would not be able to testify. They would have to take the Fifth Amendment or else they would be, you know, admitting to evidence tampering or or saying um, 
testifying in ways that would be damaging um, for them in terms of uh, tampering with evidence. So, you know, and if I'm not able to cross-examine these these individuals, then it, it puts you know, the, the, the viability of a retrial in doubt, but you know, it, everything is up in the air at this point. I, I I'm giving you maybe a best case, a middle of the road, best case scenario, um, worst case scenario, a judge just denies everything and, and they try to never, um, have this, this evidence, see the light of day in court where I can cross examine witnesses, where I can present the experts, put them under oath and have them testify under oath as to each and every aspect of the tampering that, that was proven. So just based on your experience, and I know that this is an unfair question. Uh, so it's so humor me for a second, but based on your experience, what does your gut tell you is going to be the outcome of this? Normally speaking, um, I would say that when you are facing charges, anything that the government or a judge can do to screw you over, that's what happens. So um, the reason why they don't have betting on criminal law cases is because, you know, if you bet on the government, you would be a billionaire because, you know, that they always win. Um, Judges are very, very compliant uh, with the government. Um, it's like they want to be seen as, as, as buddies or, I mean, th- there are good judges out there, but I would say the vast majority of judges out there today and sort of the overwhelming kind of feeling, the sentiment when you're in court is that the judge uh, aligns themselves with the government. And that's in state court and federal court. Um, we don't have these sort of angelic neutral arbiters that, that, you know, Constitution tells us that we should have. I think there again, we're we're getting a glimpse of that where judges are sort of breaking that that allegiance to the government slowly. Um, I'm I'm just seeing inklings of that. And again, there are very good judges out there, um, and there are very good prosecutors out there. There are very good uh, members of law enforcement out there. But unfortunately, right now they're they are in the minority, and mm-hmm. sort of the the vocal majority are people who believe in an, in an us and them kind of mentality where they wear the white hats, they're the good guys. And even if they break the rules or break the law um, because they're doing so for the greater good, it's justified. And my understanding is that you've made a push for the uh, judge to recuse uh, themselves from this case. Why is that? Well, in, in going through the jury trial, I saw a substantial um, evidence that the judge was biased in this case. And our Sixth Amendment gives us the right to a fair trial, uh, which includes a fair and impartial judge. And I think it's clear reading through the record that the judge um, was favoring the prosecution. And I I believe that it's a reasonable uh, way to characterize the, the judge's rulings and his behavior um, I think an, an average person would say that the judge had it out for Mr. Ranieri. So given that, um, the law allows you to uh, ask the judge to recuse themselves um, in a case where there's uh, evidence of uh, partiality, where they're not being fair. 
And, and that's what I did. I didn't, um, I didn't exaggerate anything. I didn't lessen anything. I didn't pull my punches. I, I told the truth. I pointed to the record instances in the record and I interpreted it. And I said, you know, a, a reasonable person looking at the, the facts as presented in this motion, which are instances from uh, the jury trial and a restitution hearing um, and, and sentencing, an average reasonable person would view the judge as being possibly biased. And so what does the timeline look for the different avenues in which this could play out? So I heard from the district court today, and again, that's where it, that's the level where the jury trial happened. And uh, the district judge acknowledged receiving the motion for the new trial based on the tampering, um, as well as the recusal. And the district uh, judge said, look, there, there's a pending appeal right here. We are going to wait to hear from the appellate court as to what to do with, uh, with these filings down here. So in a sense that it was good because um, the district judge didn't just ignore it or throw it out or, um, you know, basically toss it out on a technicality. Everybody, you know, who watches TV or movies thinks that, um, you know, the bad guy, you know, our, our courts every day, the bad guy is getting away based on a technicality when really, again, everything, I mean, overwhelmingly uh, the, the law, the rules, how a judge behaves, how, how the government behaves is overwhelmingly stacked against uh, somebody facing charges. Um, and really I've seen a lot more, um, rulings go in favor of the government uh, based on a technicality than it ever, you know, helps somebody who's accused. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And so um, how is Keith doing? Um, I know that he's, he's in a fairly uh, maximum security facility. Uh, is he being treated fairly uh, like, like prisoners should be in the United States or, or how is, how are his, um, his, how is his morale? So, um, I, I can't get into some of that because right sure. now I have attorney client privilege. Okay. And if I were to start, you know, it wouldn't be fair for me to, to give that kind of statements. And then the government okay. wants to verify that. And then when I say attorney client privilege, then it would waive attorney client privilege. Um, mm -hmm. But I can say that, that I, I zealously seek to make sure that he's being treated fairly while in custody. Okay. I understand. Um, so what's next for you? Or do you just have to wait for the, for the appeal to be ruled on? And, and when is that ruling going to be? Uh, it, it's up to the appellate court at, at mm. this point, but yes, I mean, we're, we're the, because the district judge is waiting for the appeal to be decided on, we're then we're all waiting for the appeal to be decided on. And, um, I mean, the, 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 in my opinion, you know, the Bonjean's uh, appeal was very, very well done. It's an excellent motion. Um, but I, I also think that uh, my, my supplement had a very good issue. Um, so, I mean, it might be that we never get to the Rule 33 because the appellate court takes the multitude uh, of legal issues presented in the appeal and in the supplement and rules in Mr. Ranieri's favor on that. Outstanding. Well, I wish you the best of luck uh, in this case, and uh, I'll continue to keep my eye on it closely. Is there anything that you would like to leave uh, the audience with before we wrap up? 
Um, I don't know if you wanted to get into some of the specifics of the tampering that the experts found, um, but that that opens, you know. The yeah, let's to... let's do that. Let's do that. So, uh, um, tell me a little bit about how that works. So, I, I know that he was raided, and that um, his hard drives and computers were taken, and that uh, my understanding is that allegedly there was a point in time in which the evidence was tampered with after the, his 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 belongings were seized. So, can you just tell me what what happened? Sure. We'll go through kind of uh, chronologically. Great. So um, during the search, the FBI went into his home and they there was a downstairs. They went through all the rooms downstairs. They went upstairs, passed up a few different rooms and went straight to this study area. And the very first item that they got was a camera with with its, uh, you know, little camera card. Uh, yeah, the it. SD card. Yeah. Yes. And then... Um, which we call it a, a CF card for a compact flash card with, within our motions because my, my expert called it that. And then the second item seized on their list of evidence um, was this hard drive, um, which was found on top of a dresser within that room. And then they proceeded to go through you know, different rooms. And I think they came back and got something next to the, the camera and the camera card. So, um, that right there was kind of unusual in that if you look at the list of, of evidence items, the first two pieces of evidence were the were the only pieces of evidence, pieces of di digital evidence used to later prove um, this con these contraband photos um, that wasn't supposedly wasn't discovered until a few months, a few weeks before trial. I think uh, like 26 days before trial was supposed to start. So mm -hmm. that was, you know, that by itself is fishy, but it's not dispositive. Um, then on the hard drive, the, the backup themselves, um, what they did is they, they claimed that these, uh, that the contraband photos were automatically backed up from a computer and the computer, uh, would have been accessed by many people in there. So they had to, in order to prove their, their, uh, charges here, the, the worst charges here, uh, possession of child pornography and exploitation of a child, um, they had to prove that it came from a camera that was controlled by uh, Mr. Ranieri. Mm -hmm. So um, the two of the computers that were backed up on this hard drive were backed up, you know, my documents, um, everything that you would normally back up on a computer. And then there's this third computer where only a few um, files ended up on there and I think 22 of the photos were, were contraband. And then if you look within that folder, um, like a, a few hours later, sometime later, 150 music files were, were put on there. So sort of like, well, I can't just have, um, you know, these nude photos and then the contraband photos with them. I'm going to add, you know, 150 music files. So, so, so it's as if Keith put child porn and, you know, 150 of his favorite songs in the same folder, you know, just about an hour back later. Out. Well, you know, <laughs> I got it. So, yeah. Um, it's just you two albums. <laughs> yeah. Then all of the, uh, the, the birth dates of, of the backed up files came from a computer that had been backdated to 2003. So again, the government's narrative is that th these were, um, you know, photos taken in 2005. So, I mean, you know, so, but, but when you transfer something from, from a, a computer to a hard drive, it gets a new birth date, basically. But here, the new birth date 
would didn't match the uh, it didn't match the date that they were supposedly transferred. It 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 was from uh, 2003, so that doesn't add up. Um, the 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 subfolders were made to look like they were auto generated, auto generated to the year 2005, and you know a certain dates in November. Now, um, but then upon further analysis, those auto generated um, folder names, you, my experts can prove that they were manually entered like that. Whoa. So, um, and then there's more metadata and more technical aspects where you could tell that the files, files were taken. So where I said there was like contraband photos and other photos that they were stored in one common area and that they were moved to the two separate subfolders underneath this one uh, backup folder. Um, from this computer that, you know, is mysterious that nobody was able to find uh, or identify. So that's sort of like another puzzling thing. So the more and more these stack up, the more and more questions we start to have. Again, these are, high, you know, highly suspicious at this point, the fact that it keeps stacking up. But we come to um, certain certain key pieces of evidence of tampering that, like I said, the experts um say are proven to a scientific certainty. So um, there are, I'm going through my list here. Sure. Um, some of the, some of the folders, I said they were from dates in November and around that time period was when daylight savings time hit. And the, the evidence looks like somebody was trying to be clever and say, okay, well, I need to, on the, on the camera card, the times would remain as one as a certain time because the camera doesn't have daylight savings. It can't account for it. But when it moves to a computer, the computer might um, shift the time one hour um, to, to comport with daylight savings. But in this case of all the photos, it was like somebody was going through and doing that, but they got lazy and kind of messed up um, on a lot of the files. They made the one hour adjustment and everything looks fine. But on some of them, they made a two hour adjustment. So, and this is on the same day. So some photos from, you know, the, the, the daylight savings, uh, when it kicked over, some are the one hour, some are the uh, two hour adjustment, and then some are no hour adjustment. So, and so if a computer did this, it would have either adjusted all of them or none of them. And it certainly wouldn't have come up with three different results on, on the same day. So that um, is, is really that that's something that can be proven to a scientific certainty. Um, one file. So think of, again, the government needed to prove they couldn't just prove that these contraband photos on the hard drive um, existed. And then they link them to Keith. Of this. They had right. to tie it to a camera that was tied to him um, because too many people had access to to the uh, to the hard drive. So. There's the there's a hard drive where the where the contraband photos were found, but then there's the uh, CF card from the camera, and it, it just it gets crazier and crazier. The the, the FBI ran a report and disclosed um, in April um, files here, and there was very few files that matched on the camera card to the uh, to the hard drive, and then they ran it again in June for some reason against protocol. And lots more, um, there are 37 new files were found on the hard drive, even though they used the exact same software, the exact same version to, re, to reanalyze the CF card. So um, 
of those new files, there was something on the hard drive, which um, in line with everything else, there was one file that had a um, Adobe Elements uh, filter that you could tell in the metadata. And, you know, it, it had a born on date, it had a modified date, it had everything, last change date. And, and when you compared it with the, with the image on the, on the camera card, all the metadata lined up. In other words, it, it looked to a casual observer that the file was the same on the camera card as it was on the hard drive, but the camera card would not have had the Adobe element on it. So mm -hmm. if you, if you opened up the, to, in order to get the Adobe element uh, filter on this file here, it would have altered the, the modified date, but everything lines up. So then that supports the theory that somebody was modifying the, the data on the hard drive and trying to match it up with the, with the CF card, even though it had been altered. So that's something that could be, that there's no other explanation for other than tampering. Um, there's also proof positive that at least at some point um, that the camera card was accessed without a write blocker, which is against FBI policy, and um, and it was changed um, in some way while the uh, while the card was in FBI custody. And there's no record of this, no report of this. So that and that happened on the same day as the FBI was officially uh, examining the hard drive. So there's some kind of, you know, uh, coordination going on there between these two devices, um, which all, you know, support the government's narrative. Um, let me go through one last thing. Sure. Um, and this is, this is a lot of it, but this is not all of it. Um, the digital files uh, for images uh, 93, 94, 96, and 97 on the CF card had uh, supposedly had counterparts on the hard drive. So that way the government was able to say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, look, um, you know, the same files that were on the camera card match the same files on the hard drive. Therefore, and the camera card was linked to Keith. Therefore, we can trace these these contraband photos to Keith. But um, in analyzing the, the sets of the, the same images on the hard drive as on the CF card, um, everything lined up the same file names and, and date and timestamps as you would expect with a backup. However, the thumbnail images on the um, on the hard drive don't match the thumbnail images on the CF card. So um, on the on let me see, one of them, the thumbnail images on the hard drive depict a brunette. And the thumbnail images on the uh, on the CF card depict a blonde, two separate people. So wow. somebody's kind of doctoring uh, this evidence to make it look like it lines up, and it doesn't actually line up. It's actually different data that has been manipulated. Wow. So again, that that's just, that's sort of a a good portion of the sampling, but that that's not all of it. I mean, there's uh, there's more the the 37 new files that were at look that didn't show up in, in April that showed up in June. Um, all of the files that were, that showed up in April, um, they were viewable to the experts, but the files that showed up in June, none of them are viewable. So they don't have the same sort of technical aspects as the, as the previous files. So, and they're the more suspicious ones. Again, all of the anomalies here line up to support the government's uh, narrative.
So my question for you then becomes, obviously your objective is to uh, vindicate your client, but what about accountability for the FBI? I mean, can you put your finger on who was responsible for this tampering and can that person be brought to justice or those people rather? Sure. Um, I, I mean, you're right. That is, that is a different part of the, of the, of the equation. Um, my job is to pursue truth. And um, again, uh, I'll just sort of say that a lot of people think that, that a defense attorney is out there to get their guilty client off. Um, no, defense attorneys, we have to follow the evidence. Um, you don't have to lie, cheat, or steal in order to defend your client. Um, I think that a defense attorney who gets caught lying um, to in the court to to the prosecution, you know, your your credibility is your currency. Whereas I see prosecutors get away with with being disingenuous, uh, with outright lying. You know, judges sort of uh, making the most bending over backwards in order to find against the accused. But um, I, I because I see the dynamic for defense attorneys and, and I'm biased. I'm a defense attorney and I take pride in what I do and I'm not perfect, but I do everything that I do. I want to do in an ethical way. Again, you do not have to lie, cheat or steal. If you're pursuing justice, you want to input that into the system as, as a person. So um, my job is to pursue justice. And in this case, you know, the truth and justice align on the side of Mr. Ranieri. Well, thank you so much for coming on the, the show today. It was an honor and a pleasure to have you. And uh, like I mentioned, I will uh, continue to follow the case uh, closely as a, a friend of uh, Nexium and uh, the members um, and a supporter of Keith in this instance. Um, and I hope that uh, the truth comes out and that the uh, judicial system uh, um, uh, does what is right instead of what is easy and admits that there was something, there was some foul play here. All I need is a, is a fair shot in court. Just get me into court. Let me call people under oath and let me put my experts on. And I can prove um, to a scientific certainty that evidence tampering happened, that all uh, suspiciously favors the, the government and therefore that the evidence that they used against Mr. Ranieri in trial um, was was incompetent, as, as it's called legally, and um, should not have been used against him. Well, thank you for coming on, and I truly wish you the best of luck in this case. Thank you.